We're uh, this year we're spending uh, looking at Jesus in the Gospels primarily, and uh, but before we dive into the stories of Jesus during his ministry, we're looking at two things which happened to him as a child. Last week we looked at the prophecy that was pronounced over him by Simeon when he was forty days old. And this week we're going to look at the incident which happened in Jerusalem when Jesus was just 12 years old. The passage is in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Luke 2, 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. One of my very favorite stories. Jesus goes AWOL, absent without leave. After the celebration of the Passover was complete, all those who had come from out of town headed home, including the family of Jesus. They traveled an entire day's journey from Jerusalem toward Nazareth, their hometown, before Jesus' parents realized Jesus was not with them. This surely provoked terror in the hearts of his parents. Mary even says, we've been searching for you in great distress. Every parent experiences terror when they lose a child. But it must have been even more intense for Mary and Joseph For they had lost not only their child, but the salvation of the world. Probably leaving their other children with relatives or neighbors, they rushed back to Jerusalem. Maybe even through the night. Mary and Joseph could easily be criticized for what happened here. Somebody could have turned them into the Jerusalem Child Protective Services. 
How do you lose a 12-year-old for an entire day of travel? How can you get a whole day's journey down the road before he's, you realize he's not with you? But we shouldn't be hard on Joseph and Mary. Remember, Jesus was the oldest of at least eight children. We know this because in Matthew 13, 55 to 56, his neighbors are saying, is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So he had four brothers. And are not all his sisters with us? Not his sister, not both of his sisters, but all of his sisters. So at least three sisters. So he had at least eight children in the family. And probably more. Assuming they were all born at, uh, at this point. When, at this, when this story occurred, Joseph and Mary had six or more children under eleven. That means, and I say this as an expert, that things were a bit crazy. The parents were very busy. They had a lot to keep track of. And Jesus was the last one they were worried about. He was the one they knew was responsible and trustworthy. Surely this was part of what we read about last week. When Simeon said to Mary, a sword will pierce your own heart as well. These three days of missing Jesus foreshadowed the three days of Mary's grief between the cross and the resurrection. Finally, on the third day, Joseph and Mary found Jesus. Now, the story up to this point has been gripping. But it actually becomes even more shocking in the second part. First of all, they find Jesus in the temple, the last place they thought of looking. And he wasn't upset about being separated from his parents as they would have probably expected. You know, a 12 year old, he's lost, he's like, doesn't know where to go, he's in a panic. And no, not only is he not in a panic, He's in the temple talking to a bunch of men about God and about the Bible. But the most shocking thing of all is his response to his parents. Mary, at least, was irritated with Jesus for doing this to them. Son, why have you treated us so? Your father and mother have been searching, I'm sorry, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But instead of apologizing, instead of at least expressing compassion for them, for their inconvenience and their terror, Jesus actually rebukes them. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus wasn't very good at conforming to people's expectations. The first thing Jesus ever did in the Bible 
was stay in Jerusalem when he knew perfectly well that his parents expected him and wanted him to travel home with them. And the very first words recorded of our Lord were when he said to his parents at 12 years old, why is it that you were looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? I'll get back to that. It's often said about this passage that this is all we know about Jesus for his first 30 years. That until his ministry began, we have 30 years of silence, except for this. But the fact is, we know a lot about the childhood of Jesus from the New Testament. We know, for instance, that he faithfully went to synagogue, Luke 4, 16. We know that he lived in the tiny town of Nazareth, which... uh, Archaeologists tell us had probably only 200 to 300 inhabitants. We know he was the oldest of at least 11 children. I've already explained that. And that tells us a lot about his childhood right there. Being the oldest of at least eight children means that he must have spent a lot of time helping younger brothers and sisters. As a teacher, as a storyteller, as a a shepherd, as a protector. He carried a lot of little ones around. He probably did a lot of feeding and food preparation, a lot of cleanup. He was probably sent on a lot of errands. We know that his mother Mary must have been very busy. If the babies were born at an average of every two years, and if there were only eight... The youngest would have been 19 years old when Jesus was crucified. We know that he worked with his father in the building business and later was a builder himself. And therefore we assume that he gained his skill and his knowledge by helping his father, Joseph. We also know that though Jesus must have done and said great, I'm sorry, must have done and said good things, there was nothing so spectacular about him as a child that the folks that he grew up around thought he belonged in a completely different category. Remember, they were surprised when his ministry began and he suddenly claimed to be the Messiah. For instance, in Matthew 13, after teaching parables, it says he visited his hometown and taught in their synagogue, and they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty words, works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus did not draw attention to himself. Until his ministry began, he dwelt in obscurity. As Isaiah 53, 2 says, he grew up before him, that is, he grew up before God, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So there wasn't anything extraordinary, just like a, A little plant grows up on the ground and no one even notices it. 
He was humble. He didn't draw attention to himself. He did not try to impress others. He didn't seem that much different than other people. Except, of course, he never did anything wrong. We know that not everything was happy in his home. For two reasons. First, we know that at some point, Jesus lost his earthly father, Joseph. And Mary became a widow and likely more dependent on her oldest son, Jesus. Well, we're not told that Joseph died, but we believe this because Joseph, once Jesus starts his ministry, Joseph is never mentioned in the story. He's not a character in the story. He is mentioned as being the father of Jesus, but not as a character in the story. And when Jesus was dying on the cross... He entrusted his mother to the care of his disciple John because obviously he was the primary caregiver at the time. Joseph obviously lived long enough to have at least eight children but not long enough to see Jesus begin his ministry as far as we can tell. The second reason the home wasn't all happy is from something said in John chapter 7. It says that Jesus' brothers were not believing in him. Probably this dislike of their oldest brother went back further than just when he began his public ministry, but we're not sure. We also know that Jesus was attentive to the world around him and to the lessons of life. As Jesus was growing up, he was paying attention to the world around him and how it worked. He was gaining the experience which would allow him to tell a parable about the way a sower sows his seed or the way a mustard seed grows up in a garden. He was observing the beauty of wildflowers so he could say that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He was observing how houses were built so he could teach us about building upon a rock and not upon the sand. He was learning about the function of cornerstones and lamps and wineskins and yeast and fishing nets. He was observing fig trees and precious stones and yoked animals and managers and moneylenders. He was taking note of how new and old cloth behaved differently and contemplating the behavior of sheep. He attended weddings, not just for the good food, but as a student to learn so that he could understand and teach about the great wedding banquet to come. He was learning his language well so that he could use it well. He was listening to stories and learning to tell them. He was hearing the latest news about donkeys falling into a well or sons running away from home. He was drawing connections and noticing parallels and discovering analogies. Those 30 years before he began his ministry were not just a time of waiting, but a time of preparation. And it's amazing that in that short period of time he could gain so much wisdom and so much insight and so much knowledge. 
And it was all for unworthy sinners like us. He not only came to die for our salvation, but to teach us what it means and teach us about his kingdom. He didn't, you see, just die for you. He lived for you. He lived every day of his 33 years for your benefit and for mine. But there are actually at least four things that we know about the first 30 years of Jesus' ministry from the story that we've read this morning about when Jesus was 12 years old. We know, for instance, that by and large, Jesus went along and did what was normal and considered appropriate. This incident that we read about today didn't happen because Jesus had a rebellious nature. For kids who have a rebellious nature, not going along with their parents is what every day looks like. Every day is difficult for the parents of a rebel. Every situation is a situation for protest. But not so with Jesus. This is probably the one time this happened in his whole childhood. It was recorded partly because it was odd, because it stood out. Because people remembered what happened, because it was so different than everything else he ever did as a child. Because Jesus briefly stepped out of child mode and into Messiah mode and God mode in order to send a message to his parents and to us. This story is the exception, not the rule. By and large, he was a model of obedience and cooperation. Verse 51 makes this clear. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. The second thing we can learn from the story is his attentiveness to the word of God. It says, in the temple, he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Here was a mind fully engaged in what a mind should be fully engaged in when they're 12 years old, even though hardly ever do you meet a 12-year-old whose mind is engaged like this. He absorbed, he absorbed everything that came his way. He took it all in eagerly, so he grew in wisdom. He had a hunger to learn, a passion to become wise, a zeal to listen to his Father in heaven. Before he could astound the elders of the law and in the temple, a zeal, he had to have a zeal to listen to his Father in heaven. He must have been a fantastic student, hungry to learn. As a child, he must have spent a lot of time in God's Word. And it makes a lot of sense. Wouldn't the author of the Bible's commands to give close attention to the Word of God not practice this himself? What are most 12-year-olds thinking about? Jesus was thinking about God and His Word. And 
You and I. You and me. Probably Jesus got much of his Bible knowledge from the synagogue, which is itself remarkable. We, saw, we see in Luke 4 that he, it was his practice to go to synagogue. Think about what this means about how attentively he must have paid attention at the synagogue even before he was 12 years old. He was magnetically attracted to God's word. And guess what? He learned what he learned through fallible teachers. We know, thirdly, about Jesus' attachment to and affection for God's house. The point of the story is not just that Jesus didn't go along with his parents. It's that Jesus went along to his father's house. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Even on earth, his most profound personal relationship was with the father. And he esteemed the people of God more highly than his own family members. We see this repeatedly. For instance, in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Later, the disciples would quote Psalm 69.9 to describe him. Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, we are the living stones that he is building his house with. Jesus' zeal for God's house is a zeal for us. Even at 12, Jesus hints of what is to come when he would leave his house in order to attend to the work God had brought him into the world to do. To build a new temple for God out of living stones. The bottom line is this. Jesus is more interested in us than we are in him. It seems backward, but it's true. He is the supremely lovable one. And yet amazingly, he loves us much more than we love him. There is a temple for us made of living stones. This is our home, our Father's house, just as it was Jesus's. It's where we live with our brothers and sisters. It's where we have supper together. It's where we pray for each other and learn about each other and get to know our Father. And the place, it's the place of the book which our Father opens and teaches us from. In this story, Jesus calls us to forsake even the best things of the world in order to seek the things above. In order to go to that place God has designated for his people to connect with him. And what is that place? It is where two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus and he is in the midst of them. It's the place where God's people dwell. The place where the scriptures are read and studied and discussed and cherished. The place where God lives with his beloved people. In this story, Jesus is pointing us to the temple, a home more important than our family home. 
In this story, the 12-year-old Jesus beckons us to follow him there, into God's presence, into the house of scripture, into the house of prayer, into the house of God's people. Yes, we all have to go back to our own homes. But we must not forget about our Father's home. The fourth and final lesson that we can learn about Jesus' childhood from, and life from this story is that sometimes Jesus pulled rank. Now, what does it mean to pull rank? Well, it's a military term, but we use it in everyday language. <clears throat> Imagine a family uh, playing wiffle ball in the backyard and dad's playing second base. Well, it comes to a certain time and dad says, it's time to stop and go in. And the child says, well, second baseman doesn't get to decide when we go in. But that's not the point. It's not because he's the second baseman that he decides when it's time to go in. It's because he's the father. He's pulled rank. He has stepped out of his role as a baseball player in the wiffle ball game and he has assumed the role of father. And on his father's authority, he can say it's time to go in. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this story. In Luke 2, Jesus at 12 years old pulled rank on Mary and on his parents. Mary was so wrapped up in being Jesus' mom that she forgot Jesus also had a father, a heavenly father, to whom he was even more closely connected and that her son was also God's son and her Lord. So Jesus says to her, Mother, you forgot about my father. You were so preoccupied with me going to my mother's house that you forgot about me going to my father's house. You see, the rebel in this story is not Jesus. It's actually Mary. Sometimes, as Christ's people, we need to be reminded that He is God. Jesus is our helper. He's our friend. He's our shepherd, our savior. But sometimes we get so used to Jesus in his helping and giving and providing and protecting and saving that we forget that he is who he is. That he does whatever he pleases and that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing by him. And sometimes he's got to pull rank in order to remind us. Remembering who he is, it seems, is more important to him than our emotional well-being. He's willing to disturb us in order to awaken us. He urges us to pray, for instance. He tells us that he'll give us whatever we ask for. But it's easy to start thinking that we're the ones putting in the orders and he's the one delivering on our requests. And so sometimes he needs to remind us who we are and who he is. Sometimes he has to yank our chain a little 
to remind us he's still boss. And we see the pattern of how this happens right here in this story. Jesus sends some kind of distressing circumstance into our lives and in response we get annoyed with him. In our hearts or even in our, with our lips we bark at him a little bit exposing our sinfulness and our rebellion. And then he graciously rebukes us. You've got to be careful about rebuking Jesus. Mary did it here. The disciples did it. Especially Peter, who did it in spades. Job did it much earlier. And many of his people have done it down through history. And we all do it. It's easy to do. But if we're going to rebuke him, we better be ready for him to set us straight. For him to assert his authority. For him to remind us that he is God and we are not. The problem is always with us and never with him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this marvelous story. Thank you, Lord, that sometimes though you appear as dependent and merely responsive and meek and and not of much substance, yet you indeed are the God of the universe. And we thank you that you remind us of this in this story. And we pray that you would help us, O Lord, to take away from this. That we need to always humble ourselves before you. That we need to let you be God. That we need to bow the knee to you. That your kindness and your generosity toward us is not because you are beholden to us. Not because you need us. Not because you're trying to impress us or please us, but because you're gracious toward us. Thank you, O Lord, for the privilege now of coming that our Lord himself instituted and partaking of his body and his blood in the form of bread and wine. And we pray that you'd be with us in it. And that we would rejoice, but we would rejoice with trembling. Knowing that the one that we celebrate, Lord, is not only our friend, but the great King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.